0: If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in John chapter five. John chapter five. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been walking through a study through the Gospel of John, and uh, we've come to John chapter five. We'll be looking at verses one to seventeen. We're looking at one, verses one to seventeen. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him see you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you the man went away and told the jews that it was jesus who had healed him and this was why the jews were persecuting jesus because he was doing these things on the sabbath but jesus answered them my father is working until now and i am working this is the word of the lord you may be seated let me pray for us Father, we come to you in need of your grace. We need need your grace in order to hear your word read. but We also need your grace to hear and receive your word preached. So Lord, would you pour your grace out upon us? Would you give us a united focus on you as we hear your word expounded to us this morning? Lord, many of us, are in different situations and circumstances today. Many of us have various things that are on our minds, but Lord, we ask that you would overcome all those things and speak to us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, There are many times when you and I will hear some conventional wisdom uh, that is spoken uh, as if it came from the very pages of scripture. They are phrases that we have grown so accustomed to in our culture that we may automatically assume that these phrases are found in the sacred scriptures. One good example of this would be the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness. While cleanliness is a good and right value to have, that saying is found nowhere in the Bible. It actually comes from a sermon by John Wesley who was encouraging his congregants to take seriously their personal hygiene. Another phrase that is more telling and maybe even more dangerous is the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. You know, like I know, that that phrase is quoted and muttered so often that you would think that a chapter and verse was attached to it. But again, this saying is, as well, is not found in the Bible. In fact, it's found in Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Some scholars believe that this saying originates even in the Quran. In the Quran, it says, Indeed, Allah uh, will not change the conditions of a population until they change what is inside themselves. You see, this concept of God helping those who help themselves is a concept that is completely foreign to the Christian faith. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite. God only helps those who can't help themselves. It is those who are weak and helpless that the Lord helps. In other words, the God of the Christian faith is a God who helps the helpless. And this is what makes the message of Christianity one uh, that can be described as good news. God does not wait for us to help ourselves. He is a helper to the helpless. And we see this reality taught and demonstrated in our text this morning. We come to the third miracle uh, that Jesus performs that are recorded in the Gospel of John. John, at the end of the Gospel, says that he includes Jesus' miracles and signs so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing in him, have life in his name. John includes this miracle before us today, this sign, so that you and I might believe in Jesus, and in believing in Jesus, having life in his name. John wants to basically hold forth Jesus in all of his redemptive beauty so that you and I might have life. This morning, in our time together, I want us to see and rejoice in the fact that Jesus is one who helps the helpless. We're going to look at our text under two headings this morning. I want us to see the healing of this helpless man and then I want us to see the hostility of the self-righteous. So first, the healing of this helpless man and the hostility of the self-righteous. First, the healing of this helpless man. Chapter 5 begins a new section in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus is no longer in Galilee but he has come down to Jerusalem. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus is now in Jerusalem for the reason of celebrating a Jewish festival. Scholars are in an endless debate uh, about which festival Jesus is attending. It's ultimately a silly debate because John doesn't tell us what festival is taking place because ultimately it doesn't matter. John chooses to focus our attention on a particular place in Jerusalem where Jesus chooses to go. In verse 2 we read, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. Jesus goes to this place on the the north side of the city of Jerusalem, that effectively would look like one of our public swimming pools. It's an area that has water in the center and structures all around it to provide shade. But what's important about this place is not the place itself, but the people who are located there. John tells us in verse 3 that at this pool lay a multitude of invalids. He describes them as those who are blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus comes to this place where there are crowds of people who are powerless, who are suffering from debilitating illnesses, who are the neediest of society, who are helpless. Take a moment to situate yourself in this story. Imagine the sights and the sounds of this place. Imagine walking in and hearing the groaning of those who are in pain. Imagine the the stench of suffering that would fill your nostrils as you walk into the place. Of all the places Jesus could find himself at, of all the places in Jerusalem where Jesus could have gone, He chooses chooses to come to this place. Why is Jesus here? Well, he's here because he's Jesus. You see, the places where we avoid, the places where we put a do not enter sign, the places that just seem too much for us to deal with, the place where humanity's brokenness and helplessness are on full display is the place where Jesus is heading towards. Friends, Jesus is here because he came to seek and to save the, the lost. He has come to, to this place to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives. He came to those who are mourning in Zion to give them beauty instead of ashes. He has come to this very place to put the glory of God on display. Beloved, it's important to understand that this picture that John describes for us and is painting for us is a picture of humanity as a whole, spiritually speaking. You see, so far in John's Gospel, John has given us different pictures of the spiritual condition of all of humanity. In chapter three, humanity is presented as those who need a new birth through the Pharisee Nicodemus. In chapter four, humanity is presented as those who are thirsty in the picture of the woman at the well and here in our scene this morning, Humanity is presented as those who are helpless, weak, and broken. I know that we all, Christian or non-Christian, like to present ourselves as strong, powerful, and sufficient in and of ourselves, but nothing could be further from the truth. Particularly when it comes to spiritual matters, there is a significant amount of difference between each of us, but we all share in common that we are spiritually helpless. We need help. Friends, all of us are spiritually powerless apart from Christ's life-giving ministry. As we see the, the people in this story, we are to see ourselves. If you notice, there's a, que- a question that is worth asking about this scene. Is why are these people here in this specific location? brought them to this place on the north side of Jerusalem the people aren't hanging out because this is what just Northsiders do they aren't here to experience fellowship why are these people here? Simply put the people are here because they are waiting for a miracle they at this pool they are at this pool because they think this pool is able to heal them If you take a look at your text if you have your Bible in front of you then you'll notice as you were reading, that verse 4 is missing. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. If you perhaps have your ESV Bible out, or maybe an NIV, or on your phone, then you'll notice in the the footnote uh, that it gives you verse 4, and it says that the people are there for this reason. They are waiting for the moving water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the water and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. The question before us is, why was this verse taken out of the Bible? Uh, is it too hard to explain, so scholars just pulled it out? Well, it was taken out because this verse is missing from the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. In other words, verse 4 is an addition added later, perhaps by someone copying the text, who likely assumed that readers would need more information about what is going on. You see, as we've gotten more and more and more manuscripts that are earlier and earlier in their dating, we come to see that verse 4 had been added later. There's so much we could say about this, but verse 4 has been rightly taken out of the Bible because it is not divine scripture. Ultimately, it's an editorial comment that does help us understand the passage better, but wasn't written by John himself and therefore is not divinely inspired by God. I share this briefly because ultimately I want you to be able to trust your Bible. I want you to know that the, that, that, that the Bible, there's not verses just taken out of the Bible and then therefore we need to doubt the authority of Scripture, the Christian faith, of course, is not afraid of questions as to why a verse is missing from the Bible. If you're troubled by this or have more questions or want to give me pushback, please find me after the service and I would love to talk to you. So again, back to our our main point, so while verse 4 is rightly not a part of sacred Scripture, it does give us a window into what these people believed about this pool. You see, this pool would occasionally bubble up uh, because scholars agreed that the sub of a subterranean spring and many began to believe that an angel came down, stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first would be healed. To state it another way, the crowds of people ultimately believed in a superstition. They believed that the pool, when it bubbled up, could heal them from their various diseases. Again, they are here waiting for a miracle to happen. All eyes would be towards the pool, waiting and hoping, praying and wishing for the stirring of the water. Every person at this pool is waiting for a power that will heal them. I think it's important to highlight that if we are truly honest, we should admit that we are not that different from the folks at this pool. We, like them, want wholeness and healing, and we'll go to the place that we believe will provide that. We go from fad to fad, program to program, religious duty to religious duty, new Christian book to new Christian book, self-help to more self-help, all hoping that they will be the silver bullet to fix what is wrong with us. And ultimately, we're left disappointed and disillusioned. This is the case for us, no matter our our religious affiliation or how long we have been navigating through the Christian faith. We are all those who want a silver bullet. Friends, where is your pool? Where's the place that you run towards to heal what is inside of you? What do you believe will ultimately bring you lasting healing and wholeness? In the scene of despair and helplessness, John focuses Our attention on one man in verse 5 verse 5 says one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years John turns our attention from the crowd to this one individual and tells us that this man has been in a helpless estate for 38 years we aren't told of the specifics of this man's illness but uh, based on Jesus's healing and the words he uses it's safe to assume that this man was paralyzed or so weak where he could not walk. This man has suffered for 38 years. That's more than half of us, That's for half of us, that's more than our lives. John includes this length of time of this man's disability because he wants us to know just how helpless this individual is. Likely he would have someone who would bring him to the pool whenever it was likely going to bubble up so that he, like everyone else, was there so he could be healed by the water. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time. Don't rush past those words too quickly. Jesus saw him and he knew that he had been there for a very long time. Who told Jesus about this man? Someone grab Jesus to the side and say, hey, this man's in trouble. The answer to that question is no one. Jesus knows this man's situation. He knows the the depths of this man's despair. He knows every time this man's heart sank as he watched someone else get to the pool before him. He knows how long this man has been in need of healing. Beloved, I find so much encouragement And the fact that Jesus knows our helpless and often hopeless situations. It can be so easy to think that no one in this room or no one knows what we've been through. It can be easy to walk through those those church doors and say to yourself that no one knows the week that I've had. Friends, every time you think that to yourself and believe it, ultimately you are believing in a lie. Jesus knows he, 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 he knows. Last week in our home, Haley's been working with the boys on their catechism question for the week. And the question of, this, of that week was, does God know all things? And the answer, of course, is yes, nothing can be hidden from God. That's a children's catechism, but it's a catechism we should all know. Your pain and your suffering is not unknown by God. It's not hidden by God, hidden from God. God is aware of your helplessness. It's not something that He is surprised to find out one day. Jesus approaches this man who lays before him and asks, Do you want to be healed? This is quite an interesting question that Jesus asks. This man who has been unable to walk for the last 38 years, and Jesus has the nerve to ask, Do you? want to be healed? This seems like an unhelpful question to ask, doesn't it? In my short life, I have uh, been guilty constantly uh, of asking questions that are unhelpful. This week, I was remembering a a little while after Ezra was born and coming home to my wife and saying, what did you do all day? Uh, And as many of you know, that is a ridiculous question. Uh, Some husbands have been guilty of asking that question. Everyone in this room, particularly moms, know that that question is unhelpful and even unnecessary. Another example of of this type of unhelpful question is when when you lose something and someone comes up to you and asks you, where is the last place you put it? If I knew where I put it, I wouldn't need your help. Why is Jesus Jesus asking this unhelpful question? Well, it's not because Jesus needs more information in order to help this man. We already know that Jesus knows this man's situation. Whenever you see Jesus asking questions in the gospel, know that Jesus is not needing more information. He's doing it as a way to reveal the heart of the people he is interacting with. Jesus is seeking to draw this man out. He's not just concerned about his body, but Jesus is also concerned about where this man is placing his hope. This man responds to Jesus' question in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. This man responds to Jesus with his predicaments. He isn't able to get to the water. Every time the water stirs up, someone gets in just before him. This man wants to be healed, but he can't get to the place where he believes healing can happen. He finds himself always being just close enough to the thing that he desires the most. There's an irony here in this text that shouldn't be lost on us. And it's that this man is standing before the very one who is able to heal him. The one who just... A few verses earlier, healed a boy who was on the brink of death with just a few words stands before him, but this man is still looking for his healing in the water. This man has no idea who he is talking to. But notice how Jesus responds to him. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't call out his idolatry or his superstition. He simply opens up his mouth and he says, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. It's as if Jesus ignores this this man's explanation, says none of that matters. Get up and and, and walk. Just as God in the beginning spoke all of creation into existence, so now Jesus is speaking this man's bones and limbs back into existence. Verse 9 tells us, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Those words at once signify the immediacy of Jesus' power. When he speaks, diseased bones begin to, in a sense, resurrect and obey. And they obey at once. This man is completely healed and restored. Beloved, the very words of Jesus have resurrected power. In John 4, in the healing of the official son, Jesus resurrects the boy who was on the brink of death. In John 11, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead as he yells for him to to come out of his tomb. And in our text today, Jesus raises the bones and muscles of this man in eight words. You see, Jesus' his words have resurrection power because Jesus himself is the resurrection and the life. This sign, this miracle that Jesus performs, this sign that John includes in his narrative is a picture of the greater miracle and greater sign of Jesus' own resurrection. How will God bring healing? to our sin-sick souls? How will he ultimately restore and heal our bodies that are decaying day by day? How will God heal our world that is even now groaning in the pains of childbirth? God provides the healing and the restoration that we so desperately need by raising Jesus from the dead. In the resurrection, God is effectively saying and demonstrating that all the sad things of this world will come untrue. And friends, Jesus' resurrection is a pledge and sign of our own resurrection. Because he got up, one day we will get up. Because he was raised, we will one day be raised. Because he has received an incorruptible body, we will one day receive an incorruptible body as well. Friends, I guarantee you that there is nothing in your life that the resurrection of Jesus will not fix. While the resurrection is something we wait for, something... that that, that we long for and look forward to one day we also experience the resurrection power of Christ even now Jesus Christ by his word and spirit is spiritually resurrecting all of those who belong to him friends if you indeed are a Christian you have the very resurrected Christ working in your heart right now by faith the one who is resurrected is now resurrecting you. Verse 14, Jesus finds this man in the temple and says to him, sir, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus follows up with this man and and, and comes to him later in the, the temple, because Jesus ultimately wants this man not to just experience a physical healing and restoration, but he also wants this man to experience a spiritual healing and restoration. Jesus cares not only about this man's body, but he also cares about his soul. That's an invitation for all of us today, to look away from ourselves, to, to bring our six, sin sick selves to the resurrected Christ, who by his own power will heal and restore us both now and forevermore. That's the healing of this helpless man, but I also want us to briefly take a look at the hostility of the self-righteous. The hostility of the self-righteous. At the end of verse 9, we read these ominous words. Now that day was the Sabbath. Jesus tells us, or John tells us that Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. If you are familiar with the Gospels at all, then you will know that when Jesus is doing something like this on the Sabbath, there is always going to be Conflict. There's always going to be a hostility that will continue to grow, and this hostility is between him and the religious leaders of his day. Verse 10 says So the Jews, speaking of the Jewish leaders, said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The Jewish leaders see this man who is now healed walking about with his bed, with his mat, and they confront him, because in their eyes, he is breaking the Sabbath. They tell this man, hey, what you are doing is, is not lawful. You are not allowed to, to do that. You are breaking God's law. They're accusing him of violating the fourth commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day is a day of rest that the Lord has given to his people for their good but the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders had begun to twist God's gracious gift into something that enslaved rather than something that was always intended to be and that was to bring life the Sabbath for the Jewish leaders became a symbol of a works based religion that opposed the grace of Christ in verse 11 the healed man answers them and said the man who healed me that man said to me take up your bed and walk. In verse 12, they asked, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You'll notice that these religious leaders did not care one ounce that this man was healed. The only thing that they cared about was his breaking of the Sabbath and finding out who told him to break the Sabbath. You see, friends, self-righteousness will cause you to miss The grace of God in someone else's life. Self-righteousness blinds us from seeing where God is at work in another person's life. The the Pharisees should have rejoiced in this man's healing. They should have celebrated and gave glory to God, but they couldn't see it. They couldn't and wouldn't have compassion on this man who stood before him. It's important to realize that this man, by picking up his mat, was not breaking God's law. But he was breaking a man-made law that was added to God's law. When they tell this man, hey, you can't do that, you are are breaking the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to do that. They are talking about their own law and not the law of God. Beloved, self-righteousness will cause you to view your own standards of righteousness as on par with God's standards. The Pharisees had created an elaborate set of rules that were implemented to ensure that no one broke the Sabbath. In their fear of breaking God's law, they added categories of activities that were constituted as work and spelled out the details of each of them. In other words, they created this new set of laws so that they wouldn't be guilty of breaking God's law. For example, you can only take a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath. If you took too many, then you were in violation of God's law. Another one was that, that you had to be careful of how you put out a fire, because if you put out a fire in a certain way, then it could be constituted as working. Friends, I hope you see how exhausting that is and how easy it would be, have been to settle for outward conformity rather than heartfelt commitments. One commentator sums up the Jew- Jewish leader's posture in this way, In practice, the letter of the law had come to dominate its spirit. Outward conformity replaced heart commitments. You see, those who were gathering around the pool were looking for their healing in the pool, while the religious leaders, the Pharisees, were seeking to find their healing and their restoration by conforming to a strict religious code that did not have the power to save. Eventually, the healed man tells them that it was Jesus who healed them and told him to pick up his mats. And because of this, verse 6 says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. At this point, there's a hostility that's introduced between Jesus and the religious leaders that will continue to unfold through the narrative of the gospel and climax in Jesus being crucified on the cross. The question that is before us, though, is does Jesus actually break the Sabbath law? Jesus himself, it's as if Jesus overhears this, this conversation. He hears them basically taking him to court, and Jesus says to them in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am also working. Over the next few sermons, we will see what Jesus means by this, and Jesus will give a, a fuller explanation of what he means, but what we can say right now is that Jesus is saying that while the Father rested from his work of creation, his work of redemption is still being carried out in the world, and because of that, Jesus himself is still working. Jesus' healing of this man on the Sabbath day is the work of redemption. The Pharisees are upset that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, but rather Jesus in this moment is fulfilling the Sabbath because the work of redemption welcomes us into God's Sabbath rest. This is why throughout the Gospels you see Jesus seemingly being intentional intentional about working miracles on the Sabbath. He is showing that he is the very Lord of the Sabbath. And the sad thing is, is that the Jewish leaders could not see that the one standing before them is the one who could free them from their self-righteousness. That the the one standing before them was one who could provide that that, that Sabbath rest that they truly needed. These self-righteous individuals needed the same healing that this paralyzed man received. The question that these Pharisees will need to answer and to come to grips with is, do they want to be healed? That's the question that is before each of us this morning, isn't it? Whether you know and feel your helplessness, or if you are seeking to hide your helplessness and your own self-righteousness, Jesus, even right now in this moment, is still carrying out his work of redemption. It was another Sabbath day in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus gave his most favorite uh, invitation to all who would hear, he says to everyone who is an earshot within 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 an earshot, he says to them, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am low, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden." Is light that invitation is held out to a paralyzed man, and it's also held out to these self-righteous Pharisees as well. And friends, that invitation is held out to us this day to receive by faith. Let me pray for us, Father in heaven. We thank you for your compassion. We confess that so often we forget the fact that we are helpless. We forget the fact that we are are that paralyzed man. And in forgetting that, we turn into Pharisees. We turn into those who are self-righteous, who are hiding their helplessness. And Lord, we ask that you would free us from that. That you would open our eyes to see our helplessness and to see just how great Christ is in his work for us in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.